0: Unveiling the secrets A-list copywriters use to make themselves and their clients millions. This is the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. Welcome back to the Copywriters Podcast with your host, the world's greatest copywriting coach, David Garfinkel. David, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good, Nathan. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm looking over the show notes and the people who watch on the YouTube channel already know we've got a guest lined up for this week's episode, so I'm excited to get into this week's interview.
1: I'm very excited. So let's jump right in. When you're being bold and aggressive with your copy, there's a three-word question you really need to ask. Is it legal? (laughs) That's because, very simply, you're putting your business at risk if it isn't. And today we have an expert who lives with this question all the time and helps his clients get the best answers robert freund is an experienced advertising attorney who focuses his practice on social media marketing and e-commerce issues his clients include direct to consumer brands marketing agencies and individual creators i am constantly impressed by rob's savvy posts on twitter and sometimes astounded by the stories and examples he comes up with. And I stand in the company of giants who are also impressed. Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Bloomberg Law, Vox, and Forbes. They've all quoted him. Plus, he's lectured about social media law at the University of Southern California and other major institutions in the US and in Europe. So as you can see, Rob really knows his way around The most important issues involving advertising and the law 2023 like you know not the old school stuff only which i'm sure he knows but also social media e-commerce stuff going on on the internet i'm grateful he's agreed to share some of his wisdom here today that said what i say every day we do a podcast has a special meaning today copy is powerful you're responsible for how you use what you hear on this podcast, and most of the time, common sense is all you need. But if you make extreme claims, and or if you're writing copy for offers in highly regulated industries like health, finance, and business opportunity, you may want to get a legal review after you write and before you start using your copy. My larger clients do this all the time, and of course, that's what Rob's clients do all the time, too. Rob, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's start as they say at the beginning. A lawyer has so many specialties to choose from. How is it that you came to specialize in advertising law?
2: I started my career out of law school at a big law firm called Greenberg Traurig here in LA. And I was there for about six and a half years and I was in the commercial litigation group so we were defending all sorts of business disputes of all kinds and a significant amount of the work that i was doing was defending businesses from consumer class actions and in california especially a lot of those have to do with false advertising claims so i became very intimately familiar with the sorts of risks that businesses get themselves in or or take on whether as A risk calculation or inadvertently that can lead to a situation like having to hire a big law firm to defend you from a class action. And as the years went on, there, I I learned about myself that that area of law was the most interesting inherently to me as compared to the other stuff I was doing, like financial services work or real estate litigation and other areas I had exposure to. The area of advertising is just inherently interesting to me. It's the kind of stuff that I would find myself reading about in my spare time, just because it's interesting. The psychology part, the interplay between that and, and regulation and how legal issues arise and new ways of marketing and all of that. So when I decided that staying at a large law firm for the rest of my career is not what I wanted to do in 2019, I left to start my own firm. And I, I wanted to focus on what I like doing the most, which is this subject matter. And the work that I especially enjoyed previously at, at the old firm was when clients would come to us in advance of litigation, when there's not a dispute even on the horizon yet, but to ask us to help them avoid situations like that in the first place. So like yeah. a, a big video game publisher would was about to release a big game and they'd send us... Uh, preview reels of the ads they were going to run on TV, the packaging, the labeling, and say, can you tell us what's risky here? Where have our competitors slipped up? And then we can take that assessment and evaluate what we want to do. So my goal was do that as much as I can, still litigate a little bit, but the bulk of it is that sort of litigation avoidance work. And that's what I've been doing for the last four and a half years now.
1: That's awesome and and that's that's perfect for us and for you know our listeners and viewers who are copywriters and business owners and we've got a smattering scattering of other types of people too but we're all interested in this. Could you run a few through a few basics especially what people should know that either they don't know or they do know but they ignore or maybe even where they push the line a little bit with claims and promises and maybe they don't even realize they're tempting fate. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so
2: many avenues you can go down in terms of what's risky and what people may not realize, but I think just sort of starting with the fundamentals, advertising from the FTC's perspective, which is a good place to start from FTC is a federal agency. It's, it's rules and, and the law that it enforces apply across the country. And internationally, if you're directing advertising to the US market, the FTC can have jurisdiction over what you're doing. Huh. And the FTC is the agency that's charged with enforcing what most of us think of as truth in advertising principles. And the basics are any claim made in an ad has to be truthful, it has to be not misleading, and it has to be substantiated. So You can have a a situation where an ad makes a claim that's literally true but might have multiple alternate interpretations that are reasonable and you're responsible for making all making sure that all of those potentially reasonable interpretations are also truthful and not misleading and substantiated so issues come up broadly speaking when marketers will make a claim that They haven't checked to see like, do I actually have the kind of substantiation I need today to back up that claim if it were challenged by a consumer or a regulator or a competitor? And and that making sure that like thinking through what you're saying from, is it literally true? If yes, is it potentially misleading even though it's literally true? And then do I have the support for it? That's like a, a foundational set of issues that can lead to all sorts of problems. There's a lot more specific things to watch out for that are like context dependent, you know, designation of origin claims, saying something's made in the USA, saying something like a dietary supplements, natural or organic or healthy. There's a whole whole variety of industry dependent and context specific issues that come up that people are surprised about, but broadly, is what you're saying true are you sure about that could it be interpreted in a way that maybe you didn't mean and can, do you have the support for it that you need
1: okay i, I know we're going to get into some examples later because that that's kind of high level for some people but i really like one of the things you said i mean i look at it as a copywriter different well in a different context i think sometimes if i'm saying something whether it's a claim or whether I'm telling a story or whether I'm just trying to transition. If someone can interpret this in different ways, it's gonna throw them off track. That's not gonna help my ad very much, but I really like what you said, which is if it's true, but it can also be misinterpreted in a way where it's not true, uh, you better clean that up. So really good point. I saw something you had yesterday on Twitter And like I said, I I follow you on Twitter. We'll give your Twitter handle uh, in the show notes, and we'll talk about the end of the show. It just fascinated me. It was about somebody who'd done a reel. I don't know if it was a YouTube reel or Instagram reel, what kind of reel. And an advertiser, a, a brand, used it without permission and... The Creator, the content creator, got upset, and the brand sent this very windy explanation that well, once you do it, it's in the public domain, and you said not so fast. doesn't quite work that way. Could you talk about, and you know, I don't know how many i mean i'm I'm a bit of you know, just I know just enough to be dangerous, but um, I know there's a concept called fair use in publishing where you can quote from another source. And it's probably a good idea if you attribute the source. And, um, I guess when you're just posting content, that's one thing, but the rules are different with commercial speech, right? With, with, with an actual ad. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think the the starting point is that that issue that comes up over and over again is brands not having a good grasp of what the rules are with using content that's available on social media or that some creator has posted a good rule of thumb that's applicable in just about every case is like if you find some piece of content on social media and your brand's page wants to use that wants to repost it to your instagram page You cannot do that unless you've cleared the rights to that content. So that was the situation here. There was no connection between this brand and the creator who had made the video that the brand wanted to use. The brand pulled it from that creator's Instagram and re-uploaded it to the brand's Instagram page. And so you have a copyright infringement problem at a minimum, potentially a publicity rights problem, depending on what the content itself actually included. And that issue comes up over and over again. In egregious cases like that, where there's just, you know, the brand should know better than to just take just because you can access something, doesn't mean you can use it in the way that you want to use it. But even probably more commonly than that is the brand or a marketing agency has some agreement with a creator and it the the usage rights aren't well defined. And then the brand uses the content in a way that exceeds whatever license agreement you had and then you have the same problems again copyright potentially publicity rights and and maybe other issues as well and that those kinds of disputes happen i hear from both sides of that issue at least weekly and it's usually some variation of that like a brand send a free product to an influencer in exchange for a story or something And then the brand thinks okay well since we have this relationship with this creator we can take that story and turn it into a youtube ad you you cannot do that unless the agreement you have something in writing with that creator that says you can so those those sorts of issues come up constantly in terms of fair use and and how that could potentially apply for context fair use is a defense to copyright infringement and that's an important Thing to keep in mind because it's the very, very rare case where you can confidently, with 100% assurance, rely on fair use as an excuse or a justification for doing something that would otherwise be subjecting you to liability for copyright infringement. So, what I mean is, if you're going to say, Well, I can do this because I believe it's fair use. If the rights holder challenges you about that, the only way you're going to be able to prove that it's fair use is in court and it's a fact-specific case-by-case analysis. So it's not like you're going to, it's an extremely rare case that you can win early on without getting into discovery on the grounds of fair use. So the point I'm trying to make is even if you think what you're doing is fair use and you're pretty confident about it. It's it's still risky and I would almost never recommend someone like in lieu of clearing the rights try to rely on their interpretation of what fair
1: use it is. Right. But you know, if if you're writing a book review or you're just have an opinion and it's not a commercial blog, the 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 rules are a lot looser than when you're talking about commercial use. Is that not true?
2: You you have more freedom you, you, there's more opportunity to have a successful fair use defense if what you're creating does not have a commercial component to it, and we're not talking about the context of like taking a creator's work and running it in an ad or something. If I have a personal blog and I, you know, use a, a one-second audio clip from some TV show or something, probably I have a good fair use argument. But again, like I more relevant to your audience is in the commercial context, you don't want to try to rely on that as like if you right. can avoid it, there's a, it, unless you absolutely must use this content and, and the burden of trying to clear the rights to it is so great. If you can avoid it, you don't want to have to hang your hat on a fair use defense in, in the commercial context. But you're right. Yes. If it's non-commercial, there's more potential for a successful fair use situation.
1: Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. So you had a very interesting tweet a couple weeks ago, and I'm just going to quote from it because I think, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to make an assertion. I think a lot of people, a lot of businesses, especially smaller entrepreneurial businesses are just a little too fast and loose with language that they don't think is specifically an advertising claim. And what you said was the lesson for brands, your policies, your policies are not just boilerplate. They can save you from potentially devastating liability exposure. And it's not enough to you write a good policy. You must carefully consider how the terms are presented to your users to ensure you can enforce them. I guess this would especially be true for software companies, software as a service, and so forth. What this says to me is that every promise you make online has weight and consequences, or at least it might. Is that correct? And and could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that that's a fair way to put it. What I had specifically in mind is a situation I see with a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, especially anybody who has a Shopify store, is they might have, as they should, like a terms of sale that govern the transaction when somebody makes a purchase on the website. What you want, what you really want as a brand is to have an arbitration clause, or in most situations, you would like to avoid having the consumers have the ability to bring a class action against you whether it's about some false advertising claim or some other issue with the product the way to accomplish that is to have a properly written arbitration clause with a class action waiver that a court will enforce so the first step is writing it in a way that a court can look at and say okay this is fair this is the kind of class action waiver that we will enforce and unless without getting into the weeds, that can take a significant risk off your plate. The second part of that is presenting the terms to that customer in a way that a court will say, well, they actually agreed to this in the first place. So if you have at the bottom of your page just sitting there as a hyperlink terms of sale or terms of service or terms of use or however you style it, but that's never presented to the customer and you don't have you don't make them check a box before they complete a purchase or something like that, of course not going to enforce it because you haven't given the customer notice and you don't have their consent to the terms. That's why I kind of harp on in a lot of my content, use the check box. Yes, there are some situations where you might not strictly need it, but it's certainly the safest way if you care about having a class action waiver that can work for your brand present those terms to your customer in a way that will allow you to take advantage of them. Because otherwise the language is effectively meaningless if you can't enforce it.
1: Okay, fair enough, thank you. So could you give us a horror story of someone who went over the line and things didn't have a happy ending, tell us about the consequences?
2: Yeah, I think a a good source of those horror stories are the headlines that we see from the FTC. And there's a few that come to mind that I think were surprising for a lot of people to see. One of the areas that I talk a lot about is the disclosure rules for endorsements and testimonials. And those rules are developed by the FTC and enforced by the FTC, and they have a a document called the Endorsement Guides that covers various scenarios that the FTC provides insight as to how they would approach it. So it covers things like influencer marketing, advertorials, affiliate marketing, incentivized reviews, and things of that nature, and the way that a brand or an agency has to make a disclosure to comply with these rules. And it's important to remember that the liability for not complying with those rules extends to the brand, any marketer or advertising agency involved in whatever the problematic piece of content or campaign is, any anyone who's making the endorsements, whether that's a creator or a blogger or whoever it is, and really anybody else who had some real involvement in putting that campaign out there. But so there's a case a few years ago. Uh, the company is called Tea They saw I think it was weight loss tea, some kind of tea that you could buy online. And they had a, a very big influencer campaign. They had celebrities like Party B and a few others and they had these celebrities post about the product on instagram what was interesting about this case is probably at least i'm sure your listeners know that you know hashtag ad is there because that's one way to make a disclosure about a connection between someone endorsing a brand and that brand so in the influencers posts they included hashtag ad in the caption for the instagram post but the issue was they did not make that disclosure clearly and conspicuously. So the FTC says it's not enough to just disclose it somewhere. It has to be basically unavoidable. You can't have your audience miss it. So you can't have hashtag ad as like the 10th hashtag in a string of hashtags. You can't bury it under the button you have to click to expand, Things things like that. And in this instance, the issue that the FTC had with team these campaigns was that was that issue. You had to click the three dots to expand the caption on the Instagram post to find hashtag ad. And so we're, we're literally talking about like the placement of a hashtag in an Instagram caption, but that, that misstep was enough. And there were some other issues that the FTC had with that campaign, but the result was a, a $15 million judgment against this brand for issues for that issue and related problems with their advertising. So I, I think a lot of people were understandably surprised to see that a, a federal agency is getting that granular about reviewing social media posts for compliance with advertising laws. Yeah, I don't know how much time I wanna take up with other examples, but there there have been, the FTC has been much more aggressive in the last few years and, and really ramping up both their enforcement and their rulemaking about issues like that and other, other claims that they think are deceptive in the advertising space. So we can expect to see more cases that a lot of people might think, wow, that's really getting specific. What's, what's the customer, what's the consumer harm here? Are we being too oppressive to businesses? It's a common complaint about the current FTC regime. And we're just going to see more of that. That's how it's trending. And they, continue to make announcements that align with that.
1: Wow. I don't know if I'm looking forward to that, but I'm looking forward to learning. Well, on a happier note, can you tell us about someone you've taken out of the fire and away from the hot stove to help them avoid a trip into the frying pan? What did they do and how did you help get them back to safety? Got any of those?
2: Sure. The the challenge with answering this is that it's hard to know how much trouble I've saved someone a lot of what I do is I'll audit somebody's content and identify risks with what they're doing and align with the client's risk tolerance and get them to a place that they're comfortable with. And it's hard to know what would have happened if I didn't do that. But in the, so it's easier to look at litigation that I've handled successfully to say like, yes, this worked. So most recently, I I had a, a client that, is a video game publisher, and they, had, they were sued in federal court for false endorsement and false advertising and publicity rights claims. Basically, the uh, allegation was that one of the characters that you could play as in this game uh, infringed on or, or misappropriated the likeness of the skateboarder that they used for the motion capture to create this character. Basically the guy said, that's me. I'm recognizable. Uh, We didn't have an agreement for you to use uh, me in the game in this way. The, this entire case could have been avoided. Uh, if there were appropriate rights, releases and contracts in place client made a mistake at the outset by not having, this is like the one person they didn't get a release from. And then they came back around a couple years later. But in the context of creating an expressive work like a video game, there are more defenses available than there would have been if if it was just a commercial advertisement. So it sort of touches on what we talked about at the beginning that there there are more defenses available to you for these sorts of issues if what you're putting out there is not purely commercial. So because it was a video game, which the law will treat like a movie or a book or any other piece of expressive work, There there were First Amendment defenses available. We were able to successfully argue that they didn't meet the elements for a federal false endorsement claim. They couldn't establish the the sort of harm that you need to establish for a Lanham Act false advertising claim. And we were able to get that case dismissed and and finished for getting into discovery. It took two years because this is in the middle of COVID and courts are federal courts aren't really under any pressure to get decisions out under a certain time frame to the same extent that state courts are so there's a lot of waiting around and there's not much you can do with that i just mentioned that to underscore like uh, one thing people are surprised to learn is just how long how slowly the wheels of justice turn in court i mean it could be years before you even really get out of the gate but the client was happy of course that we were able to get it done before getting into the more painful part of litigation the more expensive part and yeah i mean the the takeaways from that were this is a situation that that going forward make sure you have the right kinds of contracts with everybody you're working with in every situation that you're thinking about the sorts of releases you need in terms of publicity rights and usage rights and things of that nature but there if you are in a situation where someone is threatening imminent litigation or serves you with a demand or something like that, a mistake I see a lot of people make, businesses of all sizes really, is waiting to get an attorney's eyes on it. Like, Don't ignore things. It usually makes it worse. Even if you think the claim is BS, have someone at least look at it and say, here are your options and here are the avenues available to you because in almost every case, delaying that process at a minimum will make things more expensive and and could prejudice your position.
1: Well, that's a good transition into our last part, which is tell us a little more about your practice. I mean, I think we have a pretty good idea of what you do, but what kind of person should get in touch with you? What kind of business should get in touch with you with what kind of problems or preventive plans and what's the best way to reach out?
2: Yeah, most of my clients are brands that sell online or agencies. A typical first point of contact will be the client says, Hey, I have this website or I have this, this funnel or this landing page. I'm not sure if everything, if there's risk, I'd like to know more about that. And I'll do an audit of that and explain, identify what the risks are, get a sense of where the client's risk tolerance is and, and propose a way to get things compliant that, that's advertising compliance is my focus. The practice also does what you could call like outside general counsel services. So organizational documents for your business, any type of contract with any vendor or influencer or service agreement between a brand or an agency, or really any other business-related contract drafting and review. We handle trademark issues. We register copyrights. And that's sort of the scope of it. It's like outside general counsel work with a emphasis on advertising issues. And you can get in touch with me. I'm I'm most active on Twitter nowadays. I wish I had discovered Twitter or took it more seriously earlier because it's more fun and more engaging. But yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, both at Robert Freund law. And you can learn more on my website at Robert Yeah. And
0: Robert
1: Freund is F. R-O-B-E-R-T-F-R-E-U-N-D-Law.com. And we'll put that in the show notes too.
0: Robert, thank you for joining us. I wish that we could have you around for another half hour. And I don't know if it's possible to maybe come, have you come back on the show. I have a bunch of questions, particularly around AI, AI making hallucinations and and fraudulent claims, AI uh, plagiarizing things and copywriters not checking for plagiarism and, one of the most interesting aspects that kind of came up in my mind while you were talking today is deep fake technology and people using deep fake technology to get celebrity endorsements that aren't actually real. We saw some stuff with Joe Rogan recently around that a whole entire other episode though. I don't think we have time to squeeze that into the closing moments of the show. David, Robert, would it be okay to schedule another episode so that we can get into some of this stuff like that? Okay with me. Okay. Uh, let's yeah. make that happen as soon well, as possible. Let's
1: find out if it's okay with him or, or did he not? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I'd be happy to chat about that. It's interesting
2: stuff. Awesome.
0: So. Okay. I'm going to make a note to uh, remind David and Robert, and hopefully, we can get this scheduled ASAP because. That would be a great episode as well. This was a fantastic foundational knowledge and it scared the crap out of me. So I might be hitting you up as well pretty soon. One more time if people want to find you, where's the best place to get a hold of you?
2: Twitter or Instagram. I'm pretty responsive to comments or DMs, both at Robert Freund Law or my website, RobertFreundLaw.com. And you can find my email address on there.
0: Nice. And we'll make sure to have that in this week's episode's show notes. And you can get those over at copywriterspodcast.com. And until next time, gentlemen, thank you so much for putting this together. And we will catch you later.
1: Yes. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. When you have some copy and the performance of the copy is mission critical. Who you gonna call? Not Ghostbusters. They don't do copy critiques last time I checked. A lot of people, from the most advanced to the up and coming copywriters, reach out to me. I do copy critiques. One client, Brett Alcorn, has hired me 20 times. Yep, 20 times. That's because on the very first critique I did for him, he doubled his conversions on a video sales letter. Every month I do a handful of critiques for GKIC members. These are copywriters and small business owners who are trained and experienced, but they need another set of experienced eyes to go over their copy to take it to the next level. One A-lister told me I go over a copy like an IRS auditor. Now, I wasn't sure whether to take that as a compliment or not, but he assured me it was. He said I can find the one flaw or several flaws in copy that no one else was able to and make winning suggestions on how to fix them. So when you need a copy critique, just go to GarfinkelCoaching.com and click on the services tab. GarfinkelCoaching.com for a critique. Thank you. This is the Copy and Funnels Podcast Network.